Well, good afternoon and welcome back. It is the Jim Leach Show, and it's the first Thursday of the month, so it's time to talk to the mayor. Springfield Mayor Jim Langfelder here in studio with us and wearing a mask. So, Mayor, thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate uh, you uh, watching out for, uh, for everyone's safety here. Let's get right into the conversation this afternoon. I don't know. I, to be honest, I'm not sure if, in fact, it's been filed, and I don't, I'm guessing you haven't seen a copy of it yet, but we were told this morning by attorney Thomas DeVore, whose name I know you know, uh, that you are his next target for a lawsuit over the executive order you signed about a week ago and that you uh, had been planning to start enforcing about bars and restaurants and ensuring social distancing and people wearing masks when they're not in their seats and things. Uh, what do you know about this lawsuit, and is it in any way uh, making you rethink this executive order? Uh, well, you're breaking the news to me. Someone uh, told me that, so I appreciate it. And that's what it's all about with the radio and other news media outlets is to keep us informed. But with regards to this, uh, that's one of the reasons uh, we came forward is uh, through my authority as liquor commissioner. When the governor granted that authority uh, due to the public health pandemic that we're in, he granted uh, local liquor commissioners the ability to suspend a license if there's noncompliance. And so that's where we're going forward with uh, with regards to the uh, executive order that was issued last Friday. The argument being foot, put forward mm-hmm. is that uh, you, you have issued several of these executive orders uh, granting, in effect, emergency powers. And the city council did, in fact, act to give you some emergency authority in a public health crisis. His contention is that under state law, that authority only uh, it lasts until the next time the, the corporate body, the city council, gathers again to meet, which obviously they've done multiple times since then. And so his claim is, is that your authority then ends at that point. And you can't keep issuing these executive orders. Uh, how confident are you, based on your conversations with Corporation Council, et cetera, that you, in fact, do have the authority to issue all the orders that you have? Yeah, actually, on my way out here, I was listening to the newscast, so I did call Corporation Council. And in fact, I'll leave that up to the attorneys, but that's the reason we did come forward with it, uh, because of our confidence as liquor commissioners. So uh, we're on pretty uh, firm ground as far as that goes and moving forward in that direction. So you, you set this up to give businesses a few days to become familiar with the requirements and to just be prepared for it. And the plan is to begin enforcement this weekend. How's that going to work? Uh, well, we'll back up. Everybody should have known about this, the importance of social distancing, the importance of wearing uh, face coverings. And, uh, you know, we've talked to the health department numerous times with regards to restaurants and bars because, you know, I used to be a busboy and you would serve food and there's certain requirements that you have to meet to keep the public safe uh, on a regular time uh, pre-pandemic. So during the pandemic, of course, now it's uh, uh, known that, uh, you know, we can have water droplets when we're talking or what have you. So that's the added uh, uh, sense of uh, health requirements that are needed. And that's with this particular executive order. It's looking at four things when they go into a bar or restaurant. One is the signage, you know, no mask, no service. It's similar to no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service. I don't, I'd like to know any of the people that don't want to wear a mask, do they go into a store without a shirt on or out shoes? I mean, it's to keep the public safe with regards to that. Um, it's a small uh, inconvenience in order to keep our restaurants and bars open. That's what this is all about. We want to see them open year-round, and how can we make sure we don't have the continual spikes of the uh, virus? So that's point number one. The other thing when the officers will go in there, or the inspectors for that matter, is uh, do the employees have face coverings on? And checking that, um, the 
third piece would be making sure tables are six feet apart, the social distance part, and then everybody has a seat. We did eliminate the congregation of open space. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that kind of didn't make sense. It always bothered me because you're inviting co-mingling. And we know with the virus, uh, you know, you should keep your social distance as much as possible. That's the only proven method to make sure we uh, stop the spread as much as possible. So those are the four items officers will take a look at when they do come into the uh, business, uh, the restaurant and the bars. They will do the, this week or this past week, they were doing educational as they have been doing with the fire department. Uh, doing inspections on that front, but beginning Friday and Saturday, they will uh, visit restaurants and bars, and they, you know, in the quad areas, how they split the city, and start issuing citations accordingly. Are, are your police officers and fire inspectors okay with this? It's not necessarily what they signed up for years ago when they joined those departments. Are are they all right with having to take on this responsibility of policing people to this level? Yeah, I don't think any of us uh, signed up for the level of a pandemic. You know, I, we never thought we'd be in this situation. But the main thing is how do we get through it as uh, mitigated as much as possible and working together, supporting one another. And like I said, there's a proactive measure to keep us in phase four because we definitely don't want to go backwards. It's going to be catastrophic for our restaurants, local restaurants and bars. And so uh, with regards to the officers and the fire department, the officers, they're trained. Uh, you know, we have a class one fire department, so they're trained to deal with the public. And so they are, uh, you know, uh, ready for this. I mean, they, you know, police officers, I know public health inspectors went out and uh, supposedly were kind of accosted or I guess met with confrontation on one of those visits. That's what the police do each and every day. They go into a situation that's uh, difficult. And, you know, I I put our police department up against any others in the country. I'm extremely proud of them, especially during this civil unrest, the pandemic, and we can't thank them enough. But, uh, they're, you know, they are professional. We do the training, and uh, we'll keep uh, moving forward in that fashion and, you know, protect the public. Uh, fines are involved here for first offenses and second offenses. Am I remembering that correctly? Well, you know, uh, we've, you know, this is when previous executive orders, this has been talked about uh, with regards to social distancing, the importance of that. So, uh, you know, everybody's been forewarned. The media has done a great job getting the word out, uh, social media as well. And so uh, we are going to go in and, you know, there won't be any warnings at that point, uh, but they will look at certain items and uh, start writing the citation, getting people's attention. But I think for the most part, and this is going off of Chief Riney, when the inspectors are called, They've been going into businesses and received complaints, and they've had, uh, you know, most of the entities or all the entities are pretty much compliant. And so hopefully that's what we find when we do the spot checks. If somebody sees a problem at an establishment mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't, no, nobody wants to be a tattletale on this, but right. we all want to be safe. Who should they call if if they see an establishment where people are congregating, masks are being ignored, maybe, people, you know, they're just not you know really paying attention to these rules? What do they do? Yeah, you can. Uh, well, I'll have to get the numbers. I should have wrote them down. Uh, but it's the general fire department number. And that's uh, uh, during the day on off hours, you'd call the uh, front desk of the police department. And then uh, they're there 24 seven. And so uh, we'll get those numbers before we go off air. And I can or you can go to Springfield.il.us. The other uh, so one, the, of course, non emergency police or fire. Right. Numbers to right. Report and then okay. also public health. You know, they are the first. Uh, line of enforcement with regards to public health. And uh, they go out and do inspections. I did talk to or email 
Gail O'Neill with regards to inspections. You know, they used to publish the ones that passed. You know, they go out and do spot checks on restaurants, bars all the time. And then I asked if they were going to um, uh, also have a compliance with COVID. And so that's one area I think we should promote, you know, who's being compliant, who's not. And then that way people that want to go out or are cautionary, uh, you know, using caution to go out, this will give them the understanding of who is being compliant and where they might feel better at uh, having a drink or having something to eat. You know, and that's an interesting approach. There's a bit of a stick, but there's also the carrot of, mm-hmm. of saying, hey, if you're really you know, following the rules and really protecting public safety, we want to make sure you're acknowledged for that. Correct. And that's, uh, you know, that's what we'd like to promote. I think uh, the SSGA with the partnership of the city and other entities like downtown Springfield, the chamber, they uh, did the all in for you uh, for Springfield and people would post their stickers. But this is a way that uh, really gets the word out with regards to inspections that public health would be doing and moving that direction. You know, it's a challenge. And if you've gone into a convenience store or anything like that, and you see lots of people walking in there without masks, even though there are signs up saying you should have it, uh, and tough for a clerk to tell everybody who comes in, listen, you got to put on your mask, put on your mask. I understand holding businesses accountable, but is there any mechanism by which the, the city, through its authority, can hold individuals accountable if they're just simply flouting these mask guidelines and doing things that public health experts say put us all at greater risk? Can individuals be held accountable for that? Well, I'll leave that up to the attorneys as far as that goes. But uh, from my own personal opinion, and, uh, you know, what we should really remember is our history. The Spanish flu uh, went the same realm that we're going through right now. Uh, when that started out, as similar to what we did in March and April. Didn't, you know, we got through it. And then in the summer times, uh, you know, people let their guard down. In the winter, it hit like a fury. And I think there was like 600,000 deaths. So we should learn from our history. And I don't know anybody, when they are going to work, if someone's sick, you don't go up to the person that might have the flu or have a bad cold. Usually you stay away from them. And this is the same thing. People should be cognizant of one another. Try to stay away from people that might be ill. We do not know who that is. So everybody should do their due diligence and keep that six-foot distance for your own sake and the sake of others and then wear your face coverings if you can't. I know this is not your area. I'm going to throw it out there anyway, though, because obviously you've got to be concerned about the safety of the whole city uh, and making sure that things happen that don't put us all at greater risk. Any thoughts on the notion of uh, putting kids and teachers back into school buildings here in a, in a few weeks? Does that seem advisable to you? Have you talked to the school district about it at all? Well, we've been uh, playing phone tag. I did follow it uh, when the school board you know, had that tough decision to make, but it's just like anything else. You want to keep everybody safe, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you, know, you know, I'm trying to think what I would do if I had a young person, a uh, young child at that point in time. But I think uh, the schools are taking precautionary tells or, you know, measures with regards to that. Kids will wear face coverings, but we all know how that goes uh, with regards to that. But uh, it's my understanding uh, some, some if there's an infection within a classroom, then the whole classroom gets quarantined. So they're almost like a bubble to themselves. They're not going to interact uh, from class to class. So the, the professionals will take, you know, they hold the children's health first and foremost. I think they really look at the situation, how they can best handle it. And best, uh, you know, do what's right for our young young people, our children. And so that's really what it's all about. What I do not like is one somebody just sits back and says, well, one case is too many, of course. But just like the flu, this is like the flu, but 10 times worse. It, it spreads more quickly. It can be more tragic in death as far as that goes. 
But uh, we have to, you know, navigate through this as best as possible. And so it is, uh, you know, that's something we should be doing collectively together, supporting one another and supporting the decisions. But we shouldn't uh, wait, you know, and then, uh, you know, something happens and you look to blame somebody. That's We're in the situation where people like to blame. And we really need to support one another, especially during these challenging times for all of us. We're back with Springfield Mayor Jim Langfelder, our monthly Talk to the Mayor segment. And believe it or not, we have some non-pandemic questions uh, for the mayor. And mayor, with just a a couple minutes left before we we get to news, uh, let me ask you about something that came up a couple of weeks ago at a city council meeting, and it's going to come up again. Uh, And that was the notion of this sports complex uh, out at Legacy Point. Uh, And this is being talked about as sports tourism. They could do lots of tournaments and events there. Um, And these are the sorts of things that in normal times, pre-2020, would draw huge crowds in, very popular sorts of destinations. They've done this in other places, and and it can be a you know, really wonderful draw for a community. Uh, nobody's quite sure how quickly we'll be back to that point again in the future. Uh, but the developers of this complex came in, laid out all the benefits, and then said, we can't do this without uh, a public commitment. We're going to need help from tax dollars in some way, shape, or form. They didn't offer specifics, and they threw out some uh, options there. But it certainly sounds like they're going to be coming to you looking for some help with this. Is that in any way a viable option, given the situation we're in right now? Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the big question is how, uh, how have they rebounded on sports facilities? And so uh, just to give a little background, uh, this came about uh, because, um, you know, Shields had come forward and other entities had come forward with a sports complex and uh, the one that really caught a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, interest or some discussion or debate uh, was the one out at Shields. And so we pulled together an advisory group and uh, did a phase one study to determine what size of facility could we support as a uh, you know regional area or as the city of Springfield and surrounding bedroom communities. So we had done that and then we left it up to um, UIS was one entity, the Sports Star Village, uh, was another one. And then the Shields uh, group, uh, they all came in and talked to the group. And we said, well, phase two, they can do on their own. Uh, we weren't necessarily going to pay for that. And then so the Shields group did pay for that study, came back, and they laid out that groundwork, brought everybody up to date. And then so the next phase will be the, uh, like you had pointed out, uh, really more the details, the, uh, you know, crossing the T's, dotting the I's with regards to what it would take to move forward with a uh, a structure, but as far as a participation, you can do it public, you can do private or public-private. Uh, right now, a lot of them seem to go public-private. The public ones are struggling, and it's always about what's the new one. Uh, that's, you know, across the board. But uh, with the pandemic, I think that's going to be the discussion when they come back. The one caveat is Shields. You know, if they uh, bring in Shields as a participating partner in some uh, regards and, you know, uh, tying it to the lease, that really changes the dynamic. I think it's centrally located uh, on MacArthur and has a lot of space, of course, and then uh, what that actually looks like. But with regards to the support, uh, usually there's uh, multiple ways they can do it. But with, with us, I think it's in general what would be generated from the development itself, whether it's hotel, motel, tax dollars, or out there with special service area that is already set up where it has a uh, sales tax that helps pay for the infrastructure cost out there. So 
uh, the bonds associated with that. So, so that's uh, money that's already being collected, or would they need an increase in the special well, sales tax assessment out there? Well, that's what would have to be seen. And as that's know, already higher than any place right, else in the city, right? Right. right. And on that, uh, you know, with the schools uh, that raise the sales tax, uh, really, you're at that breaking point already. I think it's almost dime on the dollar. Might be a little bit above that. So that's, I think that's always the the dime is it, you know. And so I think that's it on that. But uh, we'll see what we can work out or what they come forward first. You know, they need to come forward. Here's the plans. Here's where the gap is in financing. Here's the support uh, that we have and uh, what would be needed from the city or if it's another partnership with other taxing entities or, you know, what that structure actually looks like. All right, we're back with Mayor Jim Langfelder. I was going to move on, but I've gotten a little bit of new information in just the last couple of minutes related to the uh, the Legacy Point Sports Complex okay. we were talking about because my understanding is that uh, the developers have been uh, doing some additional meetings, talking to various officials about their idea, and, and we actually know a little bit more about what they might be thinking of in terms of a, of a public subsidy here, uh, and this information uh, uh, just coming to me, but um, uh, apparently what they're inquiring about is uh, a package that would include an additional 1% hotel-motel tax to pay for bonds to help uh, fund the cost of the development, a rebate of the city's portion of the sales tax collected within the South Central Business District. Is that considered that's the, the legacy point? Right, right. Uh, okay, so that's the additional legacy that point. So a rebate of the city's portion above a baseline amount that would be set like at last year, whatever you collected there, any additional taxes coming in would be, in effect, rebated back to the developers. It says a property freeze, I'm assuming that means a property tax freeze on the property to be occupied, and that all this would be in effect until the year 2043. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that proposal no, yet. I have not. Uh, any any thoughts about that in terms of you know again hotel motel tax uh, and any additional? It's sort of like a TIF district. The additional uh, increment above uh, the the set amount in uh, sales taxes collected there uh, to go back to them and freezing property taxes as well. Well, one is uh, you know now uh, you know. The aldermen always say, oh, you spring this stuff on us. We read in the paper. So this happens to me all the time where people from the media break the news to me. So uh, what's good about it, it's always, uh, you know, it's for discussion. And so uh, that's what it's all about. So we appreciate that piece of information. Uh, The latter first, with regards to property tax, the city of Springfield hasn't raised their portion of the property tax since uh, the late 1980s. So uh, that's no problem. With regards to sales tax, we'd have to take a look at that. We did actually talk about that, you know, because what you can do on the sports complex, uh, doesn't matter if it's this project or any project across the country, what additional business are they bringing in? So they're bringing in individuals uh, from outside areas that we would not have. And so that's codifiable with regards to, uh, you know, the number of teams, things of that nature. So that uh, was a point of discussion as far as uh, motel tax. Uh, that was discussed. It was never, you know, as far as the rates, anything of that nature. So, you know, that's all, uh, you know, what we'd have to see is, okay, what are they putting in? What's the cost of the project? What's the gap in financing? Is Shields in or out or how's that stand? And uh, really what we're, we'd have to do is take a look at the whole structure. And, uh, you know, if we feel that it is a good project moving forward and it's worthy of support, we'll do so. 
All right, since you mentioned uh, complaints about things being sprung on people, <laughs> let's talk about this week's city council meeting uh, and the anti-racism resolution. It's been debated back and forth for several weeks now and a uh, lot of components to it, uh, talking about uh, more uh, cultural sensitivity and diversity training, more investment in predominantly minority areas of the city, uh, actually acknowledging Black Lives Matter and setting aside a, a Black Lives Matter Solidarity Day, the anniversary of the big motorcade that we had here a couple of months back as there were protests all around the country. Uh, and at, last night, as the aldermen were about to vote on it, you sprung um, uh, some changes on that, worked out with the NAACP. Uh, so what, what were the changes about and why did it come down in this way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little context first. Uh, the anti-hate, anti-racism resolution, actually, uh, we drafted it. The administration drafted that back uh, when the Charlottesville, Virginia incident happened. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, everybody wanted to show support, denounce hatred in our community, making sure that people understood that, especially what was happening throughout the country. And so uh, we drafted that uh, resolution and, um, you know, presented it and it was passed unanimously. Uh, with regards to that. And so that was uh, really codifying that point in time, uh, really reaffirming, uh, hate, you know, denouncing hate and racism. So you fast forward to today, and that's what it was uh, with this one is the point in time with the civil unrest. How can we, uh, you know, kind of uh, acknowledge that and where we've come and where we're going? And so that's what that anti-hate, anti-racism resolution had done. Uh, I drafted it shared it with Alderwoman Turner and Alderman Gregory. They gave me their feedback and changes. So uh, that point in time, we did file it. Uh, actually, it was filed, uh, I think, two weeks ago because it was just voted on. So uh, filed that. And then uh, uh, a committee as a whole last Tuesday, that's when Alderwoman Turner brought additional changes uh, to the c- committee meeting. You know, so, you know, they talk about springing it on people. I didn't never got a copy of it. So they discuss those uh, at that point in time. At, and the you don't one, generally vote, though, in, in Committee of the Whole, correct? Correct. Yeah. You know, okay. So, I mean, you, you can't have it both ways. I mean, you know, if, if people bring changes, that happens all the time where someone bring a change and they discuss an amendment. There's been amendments on the floor as we discuss items. That's nothing out of the ordinary. So with regards to this, uh, really a couple of comments. One is it's about what can we do collectively as a whole. And so... Um, uh, after the uh, pre- presentation or the amendment came forward, uh, Teresa Haley did call me over the weekend with regards to that and said, well, the NAACP should be included. And so I just explained it, you know, it was this point in time. And uh, she goes, well, and correctly, she said, you know, we should be encapsulating it, giving it greater context with regards to you're talking about uh, Lincoln. An important piece of our history, of course, is the 1908 race riots which led to the formation of the NAACP. So I agreed with her. So basically the change, that's what it did. And so, uh, you know, fortunately, well, but let me yep. let me just ask mm-hmm. you to clarify that. OK, sure. there, there's there's some parts of this that have, you know, concrete action steps to it, like mm-hmm. the, the training right. for city employees, like the investment in in minority communities and things. Uh, some of it is more symbolic, like the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. Solidarity Day. Right. Right. But but what is it specifically related to the NAACP that that needed to be in there that changed some practical component uh, because people aren't going to go around and read the resolution that passed. You know, nobody's going to walk around with a copy of it and unfold it and read it. It's not going to mm-hmm. be posted anywhere out in public. So what difference did it make at that point to have the NAACP in it or not in mm-hmm. it? 
Well, I think it's very important uh, from this aspect because it is a living document. It should be something that's carried through uh, through time. I think a lot of times we uh, do not uh, talk about our history. That's one of the components when we were talking about the uh, rail project. We just uncovered a uh, part of the race right uh, markers that were not acknowledged previously. So really, it's important to acknowledge the whole um, where we've gone or where we've been and where we're going uh, with regards to race relations. So that's an important component. That's like saying, well, why do we have Abraham Lincoln in there? It gives a clearer picture of where Springfield's been. You know, I've talked about this many a time. As Springfield is the most unique city when you talk about race relations. We're the home of the great emancipator Abraham Lincoln. Fast forward, of course, to President Barack Obama, the first African-American president. He made his announcement for the presidency on the old state capitol steps where Lincoln gave his House Divide speech. A lot of the uh, unknown that people didn't know about is the race rights was the kind of the arc that connected the two. That uh, was the 1908 race rights that uh, led to the formation of the NAACP. So no other community in the country has that unique aspect of uh, race relations. And so I felt from that standpoint, uh, it was important as a, you know, nothing it doesn't, like you point out, it doesn't significantly change the, um, the modifications with actionable steps. You know, I started with the actionable steps. Uh, so with regards to that, it does give context. And I think it's very important because just like we did, we took a look at the previous anti-hate, anti-racism resolution. We uh, modified it. And with that, we should have uh, put NAACP in there from that standpoint. So we can argue that the one thing I've always felt, and I've gotten knocked around for this, I let people speak at the city council meetings. Even though they were blasting me for different issues, they'd call me names. I think it's important that we give people the voice at council meetings. We're a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And when you talk about this anti-racism resolution, I went to the marches uh, and you know I heard the young people, Black Lives Matter, the new group, the Educating Action Together, what they've said our voices are not being heard. We want our voices to be heard. And unfortunately, last night, the NAACP's voice was not heard, not even discussed. So for me, as an elected official, I, did, I just thought uh, they should hear it, at least hear it. it and it's it, a, per, a it, pretty simple measure. And then you can vote it up or down. I think it's, uh, you know, but it does add context. I will be bringing the amendment later on because it does, uh, it does complete the document in a uh, better fashion with regards to acknowledging our history and moving forward together. It seems like the debate last night, people felt like that was an attempt to sort of dilute some of the reference to Black Lives Matter and the movement that was really on full display back at the end of May, as you mentioned, those Mm -hmm. young people and those different groups there, that by putting this in, it was taking some of the focus away from some of that kind of organic movement that, that sprung up here locally. Uh, and, and that's at least what I was taking mm-hmm. away from the debate on it. Is there any validity to that? Well, I would have agreed with you, but they did add another entity to the amendment on the committee as a whole, and that was the Route 66 uh, group. So if you if you did just hold to the original group, the Black Lives Matter, which I put in, and the Educating Action Together, which I put in, I would agree with you. But since they added the other group, I'm thinking, well, you should be all-encompassing. Actually, we had someone from the LBGTQ and I. IA uh, community come up and speak to that. And so I think that's important because we are in these challenging times. What we want to do is be inclusive, not exclusive. And this was an easy way to show that inclusivity. I probably said that wrong. (laughs) But (laughs) to encompass everybody because 
when you look at the pandemic, especially, we're, you know, our country's divided, our state's divided. We don't want to be divided. We want to work together to improve the lives of each and every person. And this, like I said, is a ongoing document that will be uh, continued on uh, and perfected as we move along. One of the things that's arisen in other communities in this whole discussion about uh, race relations and our history Mm -hmm. is that statues and names of buildings and places, uh, people have called for some of those things to change when those names reflect those outdated attitudes. Uh, Have you been approached about anything like that? We have a a Calhoun Street, for example, named for John Calhoun. Springfield was originally going to be called Calhoun, and thank goodness it wasn't because he was a huge racist and a big slavery proponent and, you know, and not a particularly good guy when all the – he was beloved in the early 1800s, but we now know in our history uh, a guy who was on the wrong side of history – has there been any discussion about, you know, changing that street name or changing other names or uh, other things here to to not have places of honor for, for people who held those views? Well, I know the states looked at that for the monuments uh, along the complex there. Uh, Alderman Gregory did uh, bring up uh, with regards to naming a street. Uh, and actually, we do have a commemoration with uh, Henry Marshall Way. That's on Jackson Street because uh, he was a— um, a U.S. Marshal, African-American U.S. Marshal, one of the first ones around here. And so we wanted, I think that was a request by Alderwoman Turner to codify that. And that was just in commemoration. But we are looking at uh, part of Jackson Street from, it'd be from Capitol Avenue to um, 7th Street. So it leads up to Lincoln's uh, home and naming that Henry Marshall Way. Uh, when you do rename a street, then, you know, there's logistics with regards to uh, people that live on that street, uh, but that's one uh, would that, that be we were actually going to... renaming the street or just making it sort of a ceremonial no, would, designation. No, as... it's already ceremonial. So we would actually name it Henry Marshall Way, and then the uh, the ceremonial name underneath that was going to be uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. And so I thought it was a good tie-in. Um, and so that's the one that I know of that we were going to move towards. All right. So uh, where where is that in the process right now? Uh, well, I've spoke to Nate Bottom. There's, uh, I think, three property owners. One would be the governor's mansion, so I don't think they'll have a problem. And there's not very many entities on that uh, portion, so uh, you know it made sense and it's prominently located. And so. Uh, Hopefully it'll be happening on the short term. A few more minutes left in our monthly Talk to the Mayor segment. Uh, Mayor, quite a bit of discussion last night at the city council meeting about your call to replace the Springfield Airport Authority chairman, Frank Valla. Uh, at, at the time, the original newspaper article on this cited the, the fact that we had lost one of our daily flights uh, to Chicago. That appeared to be pandemic related. And in fact, uh, the airline operating that announced they're reinstating that flight. Uh, but you continue to have your own concerns about the uh, airport authority's operations and feel like we need a, a change there. What what exactly do you find wrong with how the, the airport's being run right now? And what would uh, replacing Frank Fowler with your choice, former Mayor Mike Houston, what, what changes do you think that would bring about? Well, I think uh, Mike Houston uh, has a uh, different perspective, of course, on things, uh, strategies, goals moving forward. He was a small business owner, you know, headed up the chamber numerous times as the chairman of the board. Also being Mary knows the importance of the airport. And uh, really, it's uh, post-pandemic. This just in just the airport. It's all uh, levels of businesses or government, wherever you live. Uh, We need to be all hands on deck. I think Mike can really bring a breath of fresh air with regards to that. But Frank Fowler uh, is also the, a small business owner or has been yeah, in the yeah, past has, and, but, and certainly yeah, knows the airport. Yeah. He's been the chairman there for, what, 14 years Yeah, he's years been now? on 18 years 18 and 14 years, years as chairman. So, yeah, and I think uh, things have get, 
complacent. They talk about the project's been done. That's fine. Uh, we reached, reached our peak capacity, I think, on flights in 2016. Since then, we're or passengers, I should say. Since then, we're down, I think, over 30,000. Uh, but, you know, we're compared, Springfield's compared to all these cities. They talk about Bloomington. You talk about Champaign. You talk about Peoria. You talk about capital cities. Well, when you look at all of those, their airports are better than ours. And so being a capital city, why aren't we to that level? And that, that's a fair question. But we just went over this lengthy discussion at city council, you know, with regards to, you know, kind of uh, trying to re-up different boards. And, you know, when it's usually a change of chairman, that happens, you know, on a continuous basis or, you know, periodically. But we talked about term limits, things of that nature. So, no, uh, you know, nothing with regards to Mr. Valla, but I think we can do better under, you know, Mike Houston. I think uh, we need that uh, different perspective and moving forward and really challenging ourselves as uh, one community to really uh, move things in a direction uh, that we haven't seen. Now, the airport authority hires the executive director, correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Are they approved the contract. Are you dissatisfied with Mark Hanna's performance? Should no, he... this isn't about Mark Hanna. This is about Capital Airport and what can we do uh, you know, to improve things. I think if anybody, you know, it doesn't matter if it's my position, your position, we're all under the microscope, we should be, and challenging ourselves. So uh, that's what we're doing here is uh, taking a look at, you know, why not Springfield? Why don't we have an airport like Bloomington or Peoria or the others? Why are the passengers down tens of thousands since 2016. I think those are fair questions, but I think uh, from that perspective, I just believe uh, Mike Houston can bring that new perspective and take us in a direction that's needed. One last question. Sure. We're going to talk about this next hour. Um, that uh, Every mask tells a story. People wearing the mask, and they're choosing the, the design of their mask for particular reasons. Is this your always your go-to mask, what you're wearing right well, now? Actually, it was the blue one, you know, the traditional surgery, but I heard that, so I thought I'll bring this one in because I did uh, have this, and I think, it, you know, it's Tell uh, people flag. what you're wearing. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, flag-related, actually. Someone brought this to me. It was from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum. But uh, for myself, the reason I think it's important is we are the United States. I think we've lost sight of that, you know, being united uh, for that cause. And we should remember our history, what made our country great. And our greatest asset is our people. And we need to continue in respecting one another. How can we support one another, face our challenges head on like we've always done, and we come out better in the end? Do you have any Cubs masks or anything? I do have one, but I'm <laughs> limited on where I wear it because, you know, the Cardinal fans aren't too happy. Springfield Mayor Jim Langfelder, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Well, thank you. Have a great day.